dads, right? The society needs good dads. We need good dads. And so we thank you for being that. And even being here at church today, trying to lead your family spiritually is important. So um, I'm uh, thankful for you all. Okay, um, I'm excited uh, about this. Welcome to week one. We are in week one of our summer series, walking through the book of James, okay? And so I think this is going to be a fun, um, also a challenging and sort of pivotal study for us as a church family, as we try to figure out how to actually live out the gospel in our daily lives. That's what James is kind of about, okay? So before we get started, I have two things real quick that I wanted to uh, mention to you all. First of all, uh, back in the first week of June, uh, we collected um, a bunch of money for ADRN or Austin Disaster Relief Network, okay? Um, And so all the tithes and offerings that morning went to ADRN, and then throughout the week, we opened it up where you could give online. Um, And a lot of you I know brought gift cards and stuff like that. And so uh, we raised uh, somewhere around $2,500 for ADRN to kind of help with the families. And so um, that's just a huge blessing. So thank you all uh, for giving back to the community. There's still a ton of need there, all right? And so if you still want to serve uh, in different areas, particularly helping individual families who have been affected by the flood, you can still do that. Uh, Mark and Christy Nodine are helping us uh, coordinate that effort. And so if you want to connect with them because you have a heart to try to serve in one of those ways, then make sure you do that after service. Uh, Or you can write in your communication card and we'll connect you with them. But we would love to keep being a blessing to kind of the disaster that's happened around us. Um, I also want to take a brief second to let you know that on Wednesday, this Wednesday, June 24th uh, at 7 p.m., there's going to be a time of prayer and a plead for unity at Metropolitan AME Church, which is actually right over here on East 10th Street. All right, so it's right over here by us. Uh, This is in response to the shooting that happened this past week in Charleston, South Carolina uh, at Emmanuel AME Church um, down there. And so uh, where the shooting took place, it was actually uh, the oldest black church in America south of Baltimore. And so kind of where slavery was still uh, legal at the time, that was kind of the first black church to move the effort. And over the course of the church's life, there have been a ton of extremely important uh, activities that have happened there that have uh, progressed uh, 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 the the civil rights movement. And so uh, this was not only just a shooting, but it even happened at a a really historical, a really important church for the black community. And so in times like this, I think it's all the more evident why we need the gospel in our lives, okay? And for us to actually be living out the gospel in the world around us. And so uh, I'd invite you to join us in prayer. I know a lot of churches are going to come together and kind of pray. It's open and welcome for all of you all. So Wednesday on the 7th, prayer for unity, prayer for uh, equality, prayer for healing, and that really, that God would be glorified in this tragedy. That's really one of the big things that I want to pray for. I was so deeply encouraged. I don't know if you guys saw any of this, but by the family's response to the shooter, okay, they let a lot of the family members talk directly, looking at the shooter who just killed their mother or their father or their their son or their brother, and their response was unbelievable grace upon that man's soul. How beautiful is that? It almost looks crazy because they just lost something that's so dear to them, except they knew that something was even more dear, which was the gospel. That is beautiful. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to pray for that, if you want to see that, uh, I would encourage you to pray for that and, um, and, and pray really that God would bring a lot of good out of this evil. It's very rare that the gospel gets to be that public across all of the nation. But most of the nation is paying attention to this and they're seeing the gospel played out. And so pray that God would be glorified through this great tragedy. 
all right? Now, that actually really does catapult us into our text well. It really does, uh, because James is all about how we actually live out the gospel around us in our day-to-day lives, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, James chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be there the whole day, uh, so you can go ahead and flip over to that. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. If you physically don't own a Bible, we say this every week because we mean it. We want you to take that Bible and to keep that. That's our gift to you, okay? We want you to have the Word of God, and so please feel free to take that. Um, if you want to follow along on your smartphone, you could do that as well. Uh, in the version app, underneath the tab section, you can click on live and type in the Well Austin. You'll be able to follow along that way if you would like. Um, there are uh, uh, the scriptures, places to take notes. There's even a poll question. I'm kind of interested in today's poll question, so even if you don't follow along, maybe you want to uh, shoot that off and see that real quick. And then if you don't uh, uh, have a, the version app but want to follow along still, you can take that link, put it right into your browser. You'll be able to follow along that way. All right? So as you're turning, as you're figuring out your phone, um, I want to take just a little bit of a brief second to give you some insight into the book of James so that you know uh, who we're studying and why we're going into this book in the way that we're going to be going into it. There are 108 verses in the book of James, all right, 108. Out of those 108 verses, 59 of the verses entail direct commandments, all right? And so whenever over half of the book okay, is a command-oriented book, then you know you're about to get smacked in the face a little bit, right? Can we just be honest with that? I actually thought about bringing Band-Aids and putting them on everybody's chair, okay, just to remind us that James is a surgical book, but surgery is good, all right? Surgery is good. We don't have the budget for that yet, though, so I didn't do it. But uh, James addresses tons of different issues, all right? Uh, James addresses uh, trials and wisdom, which is actually what we're going to be covering today, Uh, poverty and riches, materialism and favoritism, social justice, the tongue, can I get an amen, all right, worldliness and boasting, uh, pride, praying, faith that works out or, or works in your faith, sickness, amongst many other things, all right, and so James covers a slew of topics, and so I feel like I'm selling a multivitamin, all right, like James offers a ton of multinutritional value, okay, there are actually more imperatives in James per capita than any other book in the New Testament, all right, so there are more imperatives here than anywhere else. This is likely why scholars like Martin Luther had trouble with the book because it's so command-oriented. And for us as Christians who we know we live by grace through faith, it's kind of hard to see those two marry together. All right, but it's also probably why it's many people's favorite book or up there towards some of their favorite books. Okay, it's actually the poll question today. It's kind of where is James at in your list of favorites? I have a, a, a thought that it's probably going to be pretty high, probably more high than any of the other 66 books if we were to individually look at it. And so uh, this is a great book for us to study. That's where we're going. That's, that's what James is about. And that's what we're going to cover. Okay, so um, we saw the gospel in the book of John. We're going to see the gospel lived out in the book of James. All right. So James chapter one, let's pick it up right there in verse one. James chapter one, verse one says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. Um, Now, this is actually an extremely important verse, so we're going to stop here for a second. If you are here today, all right, and you do not believe in Jesus, or you're unsure about who Christ really is, you're, you're wrestling, you're not really sure if you're a Christian, then this is the most important verse in the whole book for you. 
All right? I know it sounds kind of crazy because this is just a greeting, okay? But this is truly the most important verse in the whole because James, as many of you may or may not know, was actually the half-brother of Jesus, all right? James was the half-brother of Jesus. So the reason we say half-brother is because Jesus was born of a virgin of Mary. Mary knew no man, but Jesus was born. But then Mary and her husband Joseph got married, and they had other kids, and James was one of those children, all right? So Jesus and James are half-brothers. If you want proof that Jesus is God, this is probably the greatest apologetic, okay? Jesus was such an awesome and amazing man that somehow he convinced his brother that he was God, <laughs> all right? Are you checking with that? Like, if you have siblings, think about that for a moment, okay? I love my brother, but do you know what it would take for him to convince me that he was God? He would literally have to be God. That's the only way, like, there had to be no doubt in my mind, okay? When you saw someone getting potty trained and then you believe that they're the son of God, then this actually speaks highly to this, okay? And so, in all honesty, I'm being serious. This is a great apologetic for your belief in Jesus. His own brother believed in him. And James, as we know, was one of the first apostles that was killed for his faith. And so James was so committed to this cause that he died for the faith. If you're willing to die thinking that your brother's the Lord, he's probably the Lord. And so you have two options. Either James was psycho or Jesus was God. And so I would encourage you to really wrestle with that, all right? If you're wrestling with the faith, I think that this is a great proof text. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is so much truth wrapped up in this text that as I was prepping for this, I was in a coffee shop and I looked at the guy next to me and just started like shaking my head. Come to think of it, he probably thought I was judging him because I had the Bible open, and he probably thought I was judging I shouldn't have done that. I should go apologize if I ever see him again. But this was so good, I was, just, I was trying to think, how do we pack all of this into these couple of verses here? This is super intense for us, all right? So firstly, notice that James tells us to count. Or another word, there are some translations even say consider, all right? Is considering or is counting, is that an emotional exercise or is that an intellectual exercise? Get a little bit Pentecostal with me now. All right, come on. You can talk to me, okay? Is that emotional or intellectual? Intellectual, intellectual right? The one person that said emotional was like, oh, shoot. Yeah, it's intellectual, all right? It's okay. You're in church. We give grace, all right? But uh, it's an intellectual exercise, right? To think or to consider or to count means thinking about it actively with your mind. It's an exercise of the brain. And so note that James isn't telling us how we should feel, okay, but rather how we should think. All right, let me say it again. James isn't telling us how we should feel, but rather how we should think. This is important because scripture is literally telling us something that feels counterintuitive. Am I right? Because it is counterintuitive, okay? This should grade against your natural inclination a little bit. Think about or consider it joy when you are in trials, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Notice the text too says when you are in trials, not if you are in trials. 
So the text assumes that you, as a Christian, will go through trials. And so when trials come, you must consider it joy. Now listen, we are in a culture that is miserable to, be, to, 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 to do this to begin with. All right, we're in a cultural that is absolutely miserable at that. Might I dare say this verse is actually even more important for us in this culture than maybe it even was in its original hearer's context because we are not set up for this by any means at all. All right, almost every other culture without exception throughout all of human history knows that suffering is going to come to them. And most of their literature is trying to explain how you should respond to that suffering. So they knew that suffering was a necessary cause in life. In our culture, if suffering comes our way, then something is wrong or somebody is wrong and we sue. Right? Am I right? So you spill hot coffee, it shouldn't have been so hot, so you sue. Right? If the coffee's not warm enough, if it's too lukewarm, then you go cuss the person out for not making your drink fast enough or whatever it may be. Don't act like y'all are all holy. You know you do petty stuff like that, right? We're not set up at all to accomplish what this verse is telling us to accomplish. Because even in the smallest suffering, we say something's got to be wrong. If there's a little trial, no matter how, something's wrong. Something's wrong somewhere. Something's off course. Am I, am I sinning against God or, 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 or is there something wrong with me or, or somebody has wronged me in some way? And we don't think about it the way most cultures have. We think as if something is wrong. So we are very much swimming upstream here, all right? We are swimming upstream in our culture. And most of the time when I hear this verse quoted, I hear it quoted miserably wrong and in really, really bad context, okay? So most Christians take this verse to mean be happy all the time. Is that what this verse is telling us to do? No, all right? That's not, and by the way, uh, th that's, that's not by any means what this is saying. And so most churches that you walk into, it looks like everybody got spiritual plastic surgery or something because they just walk around with smiles on their faces, never letting anybody into what's really going on. Amen? Is that truthful? You know that you've seen that, you've been a part of that, you've probably participated in some of that. And so this verse is not necessarily about being happy because oftentimes it's hard to be happy when things are a wreck all around us. Matter of fact, it's pretty much impossible. But is James telling us how we should feel or how we should think? He's telling us how we should think. And so this is very different, okay? Nor does the text say, be happy at your trials. That's not what the text is saying either. Trials are not joyful in and of themselves, right? Some of you may be a little bit weird with me, okay? Maybe you really like trials. Maybe there's like two of you. For the rest of the normal population, trials are not fun. And so scripture isn't telling us to do something that's asinine, okay? It's not, it's not completely insane to think this way. It's just countercultural. Right? And so we don't walk around being like, yes, I'm suffering. Everybody look at me. Hallelujah. Right? That's not what we do at all. Okay? And so this verse doesn't say that we rejoice at trial. It says that we rejoice in trial. Do you see the difference there? The verse isn't telling us to rejoice at trials. It's telling us to rejoice in our trials or through our trials, if you will. We rejoice in trial because James is telling us to intellectually think about the outcome, to consider, to count, to think with your mind about the outcome. So trial isn't making us happy. Okay, that's not what this verse is telling us to do. The outcome is making us happy. 
What the trials will produce is what's bringing us joy. That's what this verse is telling us. That's what we are to understand about what it actually does for us. So what do trials do then? The question should be. Okay, so, so we want to be happy. Well, well, what do trials actually do? Well, the verse goes on in verse 3 and 4, and it says that they give us steadfastness. Then it says that steadfastness, when it has finished his work, will make us perfect. Perfect. Say that word with me. Perfect. Say it again. Perfect. All right? Complete. Or, James puts it in the negative, lacking in nothing. So you are perfect or complete or you are lacking in nothing. This is a massive, massive phrase, right? Trials actually produce in us the image of Christ, perfection. Jesus, who was perfect, is making us into him so that we too can be perfect. Trials produce sanctification is another way of saying that. Now, this is where some of the rubber begins to hit the road, right? Because if our eyes are only set on this life, then this verse makes no sense at all. If our eyes are only set on today, this verse makes no sense at all. If the goal of our existence, let's put it like this, is to have success, or if the goal of our existence is to make a lot of money, or if the goal of our existence is to find love, or if the goal of our existence is, is, is to have a great job, or if the goal of our existence is health, then this verse makes no sense whatsoever. Here's why. Because when trials come, they usually involve devastating one of those things. You tracking with me? So when trials come, they usually devastate our health. And so if our, if our life is about health and about building up our health, then when a trial comes, how can we rejoice in it if that's the very key to life is health? Well, that's not the key to life, James is saying. If trials come and it devastates love or it devastates our money, then how could we find happiness? Well, we can't. And if that's where our hope is, if that's where our promise is. So James is telling us to think through, to look through those into something that's much greater. greater. Because uh, uh, if, if, if these trials are destroying the true purpose of our life, there's no way we're going to find joy in those trials. But if our trials are pointing us to something greater, then we can find great joy in our trial, right? And so if this life is nothing but a precursor for the life to come, to us actually going and standing before Jesus, then trials can actually be our great friend, okay? If we consider, if we think logically about the end of the trial, if we actually intellectually realize what God is doing, how he's actually building and molding us to become more and more like him. And so James's plea is that we would think eternally. That's James's plea for us, is that we would have an eternal perspective, if you will, looking through the trial toward perfection, toward completion, toward Jesus, and us becoming the image of him. So therefore, friends, in trials, you aren't meant to fix your eyes on your circumstances, you're meant to fix your eyes on Jesus. In your trials, you aren't meant to fix your eyes on your circumstances. You're meant to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because if you fix your eyes on Jesus, then the trials actually make a whole lot of sense. Now listen, this makes no sense if earth is all that there is, right? If earth is all there is, then trials are the dumbest thing in the world. But if there's actually something greater than when the pain hits or when the marriage is tested or when sickness comes to you or to your family or when death visits unexpectedly and it makes no sense in reality, God could be using this to shape us into the image of Christ to help us see our eternal destiny. 
all of these things are even big things that we mentioned, right? But notice there in verse two, it actually says various trials. See that? Various trials. This means both big trials and small trials. Not just the huge things, though those are easier to focus on because we tend to grasp onto those, but even the small ones, right? This means that things that will impact your life for the rest uh, of of your existence and the tiny things that are happening today that you're going to end up forgetting soon. Both of those are important. And God uses both of those things, the big and the small trials, the long trials that happen for 10 years and the short ones that happen for 10 seconds. God uses those things to bring you into the image of Christ, to shape you and mold you into who you are so you may be more like him. God uses these to make us perfect, this text says. Perfect. And perfection should actually be the Christian's goal because it is attainable in Jesus, because he was perfect. And we can be made into the image of him. And so once again, if earth is all this is, this text is stupid. And that's usually how we see it. But if there's an actual heaven, if there's an actual eternity, then this is a beautiful verse where you can actually find happiness in it or joy in the midst of the trial, okay? I was in India several years ago, actually, and um, as we were walking around the streets, oftentimes you can go to different markets and you can uh, buy, you know, different crafts or, or things that people make with their hands. And one of the things that I saw being made was this rug, Okay. Now, the makers of this rug were rugged, not to play a pun on words, all right, but really, like it was hard work, you could tell. Their hands were all cut up and kind of marred, all right, and they were working really, really hard at making all of these rugs. Now, have you ever seen a handmade or, 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 or a homemade rug? If you look at the bottom side of it, what does the rug look like? It's actually ugly, all right? I'm not trying to diss anybody's work. I'm being serious. There's no pattern that's going on. It doesn't look like. There's no scheme. The colors are kind of all colliding together. There's loose thread hanging all over the place. There's probably blood on it from when they poke their hands or whatever, right? Like it's not the prettiest picture, okay? But when you flip it back over to the top side, it is a beautiful, beautiful rug, It's super, super beautiful. And so this taught me, this is what I learned when I was looking at that. Don't judge the work by looking at the wrong side. If I looked at the wrong side and I judged the work, I'd say, he's a terrible rug maker. Don't judge the work by looking at the wrong side. Trials are the bottom side of the picture for us. The top side of the picture is perfection is eternity, is beauty with Jesus Christ, our savior forever. This is what we are to look at. So God isn't aiming to make us happy in this life. He's aiming to make us holy in the next life. However, if you are holy in the next life, then you will be happy for eternity. And so this is exactly what we want. We want to be made holy because we want joy forever. And that's what Jesus is offering. Our values, to put it another way, determines our evaluations. Are you tracking with that? Uh, so when James says count it joy, our values will determine how we count. What we value will determine how we find our joy. So if we value things of this earth, then we're not going to find joy. But if we value Jesus, then we're going to find joy forever. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will without doubt dismantle us. And that's one of the biggest trials that come into our life is God disrupts our comfort. And if we value comfort more than character, Trials will without doubt dismantle you. But if you can look through the trials into eternity, if you can count 
what God is doing, you will have everlasting life with Jesus forever. You will be made perfect and complete in him. Notice too in verse four, at the very, far, at the very start of it, it says, and lit, lit, right? That means there's some action on your part. You have to allow the trials to do the work that they're meant to do in your lives. You have to allow them to work in your heart, okay? So I told you this is hard, right? James comes in and is like, hey, what's up, y'all? I'm James. Wham, wham, <laughs> right? And just starts punching us right away, okay? He's not dancing around the ring. He's boxing right at us, right? But this is important. This is good. When trials are hard and frustrating, then what do we do? Because that's the next question. Okay, I see that I could look through trials and try to find eternity through them, but what about when I'm, I'm not really sure what God's doing? What about, what about when they're confusing me? What about when they're shaking my faith? What do I do? Well, James answers that, actually. Let's finish our text. Verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will, not might, not may, it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Wisdom, friends, is not automatic. You have to ask for it. When the trials are frustrating, confusing, you don't know what's going on, you got to ask for wisdom. Meaning trials are always meant to draw you toward God, not away from God. Because you have to ask God when you're going through a trial, so you're actually being drawn toward God in the very midst of the trial. Wisdom requires that you seek God for it, for he is the one who holds wisdom in his hands. Wisdom was the first of his creations, Proverbs says. Wisdom was at his right hand when he began to craft out the world. Wisdom is the one that God holds. And so trials help you to know God more, that you may know and that you may love him, that you may adore him, that you may receive more of Jesus, amen? That's what you want is more of Christ if eternity is what's actually on your heart. And so look, wisdom does not promise removal of the trial because that's what some people read that as as well because we want comfort in this life, right? So we go, God, please help me. And we think that if we pray that, then God, like a genie in a bottle, we rub the bottle the right way and he'll come out and remove everything, right? That's not what this text is saying though. Oftentimes God will actually keep you in the trial because he wants you to be mature and complete lacking in nothing. He wants you to be an adult, if you will, because God loves you. So he'll give you wisdom rather than automatic removal, right? Like, listen, I love Micaiah, right? It's Father's Day, so we gotta do a, a, kid, a kid analogy, right? I love Micaiah, but sometimes she has to learn how to do things on her own, right? So like, even when I see her struggling using her fork, you know, she tries to grab the egg and then she's like stabbing herself in the ear, you know, she's completely missing her mouth, it's falling off. I really want to help sometimes, but I let her struggle. Because I'm a wicked dad? No, because I want her to be an adult, <laughs> right? If she never learns how to do it herself, she won't be mature or complete or perfect in how to eat. God will sometimes leave you in the trial because he wants you to know how to use your fork. He wants you to know how to eat, right? He doesn't want to just always be feeding you milk. He wants you to move on to solid food. God wants you to be mature. And so God may meet you and he may help you and he may walk through it with you. And sometimes I do cut up Micaiah's food so she can eat a little bit better. And God will be there for you without doubt. But sometimes he's going to leave you in it. But he will give you wisdom, this text says. He will help you understand. He will walk through it with you. 
God will even fight with you oftentimes. Oftentimes he'll even feed you, to be honest, if you seek him, right? Because God loves you. But his goal is not 80 years of a cool life on this earth. His goal is your eternal existence. And he would rather have you suffer right now to not miss the big picture or even worse, to not miss him. God knows what true joy is. So he loves you. He's a good dad, okay? And notice verse five. This is an awesome promise. If you write in your Bible, underline, circle this phrase because this is important. This is an awesome promise. It says that God gives generously. Generous means a lot, right? Like I can give or I can give generously. And we know that there's a big difference between the two. God doesn't just give, but he gives generously to those who ask. And God doesn't show reproach, the text says. In other words, God doesn't mock us when we ask him. In other words, you don't have to be afraid to go to God. Ask God for wisdom. Run to him. He can answer. He can show himself to you in beautiful ways. So there's no need to feel shame when you're going. Or sometimes God will use godly men and women who he's already maybe given the answer to or who he wants to use. Don't feel shame in going and asking for help. Don't feel shame in going and asking for wisdom through the trial. Sometimes God wants to show himself either directly to you or through other people that you may know how to face the trial, that you may know how to be steadfast in the trial so you can be perfect and complete. God's goal is your perfection. That's his goal. So God may be testing your marriage. God may be testing you at your job. God may be testing you with your money or or in your ministry or in your health. And this is for his glory And his glory is your joy, I promise it. His glory is your joy. And so be steadfast, friends. Be steadfast. That's what this text is calling for us to be, is to be steadfast, to stop our feet in the ground and say, I'm going to stand here because I'm looking forward to what's coming ahead because my goal is Jesus. God builds character often before even calling us into service. So some of us want to be used by God. He'll often try you before actually giving you the assignment that he may have called you to do. So God must work in us before God can work through us, is the way you can say that. God must work in us before God can work through us. In my own life this year, we've had tons of different trials, right? Just thinking through this past year, the, the miscarriage. Right now, my mother-in-law is going through a stroke, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to see that. We're, we're in Houston, and we're seeing her cry and seeing her be frustrated, and it's a hard thing. She's starting to gain a little bit of her speech back and we were there yesterday. And she said, what are you teaching on tomorrow? I said, oh, James 1, kind of join your trials. She said, I need to hear that, (laughs) you know? And then for the next, honestly, 10 minutes, tried to explain a story and couldn't and broke down crying. That's hard, okay? We've seen that. That's hard for my wife to go through. That's hard for me to see her going through. Our own family problems, money problems, time problems, Right? We've been traveling so much, it's hard to gain a balance sometimes. Micaiah throwing fits problems and punching me in the face and kicking me in inappropriate places. And my anger level getting tried. <laughs> right? God uses these things to try to bring you into perfection. God knows what he's doing. He loves you. He gives generously. He helps you. God wants you to be mature in Christ. This is his goal. God isn't bad. He's good. He knows what he's doing if we look at the right side of the rug if we realize that eternity is our goal. Now, let me end with this, okay? Because some of you are gonna look at that word doubt there and you're gonna get a little bit confused at that, okay? Because it says you need to ask without doubt. So you can't have doubt. And that often shakes a lot of us, okay? 
the word doubt, the Greek word there actually translated would be fairly well translated as being double-minded or double-souled is really what that word is. So it actually translates like that later in that verse where it says, you can't be like a double-minded man tossed and driven by the wind. It's a man, listen to me, it's a man who shifts his or her allegiances from one thing to the next, okay? It's not saying that you can't have concern, or you can't be scared, or you can't be confused. That's not what the text is saying, but that's how we translate doubt in English, okay? This word is saying that God wants all of you, and you can't be shifting allegiances. You can't be like a man that's being thrown by the waves of the world. So if joy is found in your job, then you get slammed against this rock. And then if joy is found in coming to church, you slide way over here. And then if joy is found, and your allegiances are all over the place, that's the doubting man. You're doubting that God is actually who he says he is. That's what this verse is actually highlighting. Jesus in Matthew actually says the exact same thing. He just says a little bit different. He says, you can't serve two masters, God and money. But that's true for anything, right? God and love, God and yourself, God and whatever it may be. If you're serving other things, you're being tossed and driven by the wind. And it says that man shouldn't think he would receive anything from God. He's not even a son of God. He may not even know Jesus as Savior because he's going all over the place, okay? So it's not saying that you can't have confusion or doubt or even if you make a mistake that God, God won't meet you. No, God will meet you in your mistakes. God will meet you, but God wants your heart, okay? God wants you to focus on the right thing. So this is what James means by doubt is you have to have God as your God, not other things as your God. You have to have God as your God, not you as your God, Okay? And so this is, this is, you can have room for concern. Let me just put it like that. Because a lot of people struggle with this verse. You can have room for concern in your mind. You just can't doubt God and who he is. You have to be devoted to God. Or even when you do doubt, you have to say, God, I want to know you more. I want to be aligned with you. I want my allegiances to be with you and you alone. I want you to be my God and me to be your people. You want to be connected to the vine, okay? And so this is what James is saying. You have to believe in the gospel, is what it's saying. This is where we actually look to Jesus as our great example of this. Who do we see this verse played out to in perfection? Well, none other than Christ our Savior, right? Jesus went through more trials than anyone has ever gone through in all of human history. Very few people have been tried by Satan himself, because Satan is not omnipresent, okay? And so Satan is trying Jesus throughout his whole ministry, it seems. And Jesus passed time after time after time. The Pharisees are trying him over and over. His disciples are trying him. The one whom he loved, the last passage that we looked at in John, the very friend of his gave him up. And then he's in the garden saying, God, I don't want to go through this. There's some concern, right? Hey, you listening to me? There's some concern, right? He's praying to God saying, this is hard. I don't want to do this. This is, if there's any other way, but I want you, but I want you more than I want my own will. So not my will, but yours. That's what it means to not doubt. Jesus was our perfect example that he died on the cross, suffering everything so that we might be able to endure. Where he was steadfast, he's trying to show us how we can be steadfast. Where he persevered, where he found joy, he's trying to show us that that's where we can find joy. Matter of fact, flip back just one page real quick to James chapter 12, maybe two pages in your Bible. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read this, starting in verse 1. 
It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here we go, ready? Now let us run with endurance or steadfastness or perseverance. Same word there, right? The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy There's that word again. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked ahead. And that's what James is telling us to do. Jesus was our great example. Jesus went through more trials, more pain than we could ever imagine. And he is able to endure by looking ahead, by looking at what would be. And so this is what James is telling us to do, is to mimic the example of Jesus. Jesus looked to the end of the road, and that's where he found joy. He had joy in suffering because he looked at you. You were his treasure. You were his joy. For the joy set before him, it says. And then it tells us that he won us. Consider him who endured from sinners, verse 3 says, such hostility against himself. He endured from us so that he might win us to him. So in your struggle with sin, you need to run hard. You need to fight. Jesus died that you may know him. He's our great example. And so remember, James' implications is living out the gospel. Jesus gave us the gospel. He showed us the gospel. James is trying to help us live it out. James says that our job is to now represent or listen, represent Jesus to others even to our own lives. And that's what we get the opportunity to do through trials. If you know that trials are going to bring about perfection in your life, you're gonna face them a lot better. Once again, this is a thinking exercise though, not a feeling exercise, okay? So trials may still feel hard, they probably are. But if you consider, if you stop, if you think about what God is trying to do in your life, and if you realize that perfection is his goal, and he can bring you into his image, or, listen, even use your trials to bring other people to know him, because that happens too. When you're suffering, your friend is suffering, and somehow you have joy in your suffering, you don't think that's a great opportunity for the gospel? As we talk about reaching people in the past three weeks, we want to be a sent church. Man, what a beautiful way to do that is to endure, to be steadfast through trials, okay? God is using this. That's how you can consider it joy in trials. When you look toward the end, friends, when you look toward what God is trying to do in your life, that's how you can realize. So friends, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Be steadfast in your trials. Look to Jesus, That's where your joy is found. Consider Jesus, who is steadfast for us, that we may be steadfast for him and make his name known. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you for being steadfast for us. You went through more suffering than anybody ever has. You died on the cross. You faced the very wrath of God. And it was your joy to persevere through it that you may win us and glorify your Father. God, let us be like that, God. I confess I am nowhere near that. I am a baby when we suffer. (laughs) Help us to endure. Help us to be steadfast. Let us be a church that is steadfast. As you're praying, I would encourage you to to continue praying. 
But on the back of your communication card, in a minute the ushers are going to come forward, you're going to drop that in. On the back of your communication card, there's a little spot on there where you can check off that it says, I will commit to pray for the church this week that we would be a church of steadfastness. And I would encourage you, if you're going to commit to that, I would encourage you to check that off. And whenever you think about James 1 or whenever you personally are going through a trial or when you see trials happening, would you commit to praying that we as a body, that we as a community would be steadfast as a church? I would encourage you, if you would commit to that, I would encourage you to check that off and commit to praying. And that's exactly what we pray. That's what I pray today, God, that we would be a steadfast church strong in the gospel, rooted in the gospel, seeking our joy in you, Jesus. Let us be that. Bless us with that, Christ. We pray this in your beautiful and precious name. Amen.